Please turn with me to the book of Malachi. It's page 801 if you're using the Bible that's provided in the seat back in front of you. And if you need to find it in your own Bible, just turn to Matthew and go back a couple pages. As you turn there, I think it's worth pointing out that um, even as the last incident with the, the microphone showed a few moments ago, I am getting old. <clears throat> this was, came to mind this week on several occasions, and what you just saw a few moments ago was just another example. It first struck me when I was on my way up to North Carolina for the funeral. I'm sitting, and um, the, the flight attendant is about to give, you know, the normal humdrum instructions about everything, and she's doing so with an air of authority. And it just, it, it dawns on me that I am way older than she is. Like this 24-year-old is telling me how to put a seatbelt on. And I thought, wow, I, I, I forgot. I, like, I used to think of that, those were the old people. And now, like, I'm the old guy sitting there listening. It was probably 12 hours later. I show up to the funeral to some family that I haven't seen in, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. And two of them say, wow, you're getting old. Look at all this gray hair. <laughs> And I'm like, all right, well, thank you for that reminder. So I've got those two things going for me. Then I'm, I'm on the way back to Florida from the funeral, um, studying uh, the book of Malachi, reflecting on it for today. And all of a sudden, one of these comments comes to mind that only old people make. And that is, man, the world is so much worse today than it used to be. <laughs> and then, of course, a few moments ago, it makes it look like uh, the sound team doesn't know what they're doing because uh, nothing's coming out of this microphone, but it's because I didn't turn it on. <laughs> the old man thing, though, that is most pertinent to this message is that reflection, though, that it is a different world. And I used to hear, you know, the people that were a generation beyond me say that kind of thing, and I didn't know another world, so I didn't know how, how different it could be, but... Now I'm starting to see it. And it's not just experiential. There's evidence to prove that the world that we live in today, especially as it pertains to people's understanding of the Christian faith, is way different than the world of even 20 years ago. I would posit at least a couple pieces of evidence toward this observation. Uh, the first would be uh, one that uh, Carl Truman has noted well in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, it is uh, the, the success of the sexual revolution. Now, sexual sin has been around uh, as long as um, the garden. I mean, the, the capacity to rebel against the Lord in the, in the ways that he has commanded us to, to use our bodies and the way that he's commanded us in marriage, that, that's been around a really long time. And people have sinned in all kinds of ways sexually for thousands of years, but we're finally in a day in which sexual sin is actually 
celebrated. You know, it used to be kind of the seedy thing that you would do. It was looked down upon. You know, people did it, but it, it wasn't glorified. It, it wasn't celebrated. But now if you just look through legislation and then popular culture, you see that uh, the sexually progressive are actually the heroes of our culture, whereas those who are sexually conservative or would adhere to a Judeo-Christian sexual ethic are viewed as uh, the oppressive and the backward. So it's a different day because of the, the sexual revolution. It's also a different day because of uh, the current political climate. Uh, I have an office, I mean, a, a book in my office that has fascinated me. I wish that more people would read it with me and we could, like, have lunch together. Open offer. It's called Politics After Christendom. And it's actually written to explain a political theology for a post-Christian age. Like, we always wonder, like, to what degree should we play a role in the political process How are we salt and light in a democratic republic? Basically, this this guy, he's a professor at Westminster Seminary in, in California, is trying to answer that question for us. But what he notes is that for the first time in 1,500 years, we live in a post Christian world. What he means by that is there used to be this thing called Christendom, where people would kind of expect that laws and legislation would align at least largely with that which God prizes and values. But no longer can we actually expect the political structures around us to embrace Christianity. In fact, because of teachings related to critical race theory, what you and I would believe about right and wrong is considered to be part of the hegemony. It's part of this uh, this, this privilege that was passed on by a certain racial group, and we need to deconstruct these things so that other powers can begin to have a voice in the political sphere. The point is, Christianity, for the first time, is now viewed in many ways as the enemy of progress, whereas it used to enjoy some type of political favor. So, it's a different world. And in many ways, the term post-Christian is a very good one. We'd be tempted to think that we live in a very pagan culture. But friends, paganism is a different animal than post-Christianity. Paganism is a group of people who have never heard Jesus before and are resistant to him. Uh, Pagans would be the unreached tribes in certain parts of, of Africa and Southeast Asia. They've never heard. They're truly pagan. They've had no spiritual influence. Post-Christian is a different animal. Post-Christian is when people have heard these things and maybe at one point received these things, but now reject these things. It's, um, It's what one missiologist called a burnout zone. It's like there was something green and beautiful and verdant there, and it died, and it is burnt, and it is charred to the ground, and it's going to be hard to raise it back up again. It's the world we live in. And it is not, it is not very much unlike the world of Malachi's day. Of course, they would have never used the term Christianity But Malachi, of all the prophets that we've seen up to this point, was the most post-Christian 
at least in the context that he was dealing with. You remember that we were reading uh, Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, we were reading um, Haggai and Zechariah, and this was after the, the Babylonian captivity. The Persians allowed these guys to come back, and they're rebuilding the temple. And they have these high hopes that they're going to rebuild the temple, and there's going to be a revival, and that the ruler is going to come, and, and, and things are, are sitting nice for them. They're, they're expecting that everything is going to turn around. But what we find out from the book of Malachi and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is that 20, 30, 40 years began to work their way down the pike, and guess what? Nothing changed. They found themselves struggling with the same sin all over again, and they basically started giving up. They just started giving up. That's why Nehemiah 13 was so important for you to see today. I mean, to the point that you have one of God's chosen leaders willing to fist fight the other individuals in leadership in Jerusalem at the time. I mean, similar overlap to Malachi here. This is what's going on. In one situation, they actually like rented out one of the rooms in the temple to a guy so that he could have a place to stay. Uh, in another, they were bringing all these guys in to actually sell stuff. Think of a yard sale happen, happening in the temple courts on the Sabbath. And he's saying, I kicked them all out. But all they did was they kept selling their stuff on the Sabbath, but just outside the city gates. And then the third thing that Nehemiah le- lamented about his day is no longer, like when he walks around Jerusalem, think about this. He doesn't hear the language of Zion. He doesn't hear God's people using Hebrew he hears them speaking the language that epitomized the pagan nations around them. They have so intermarried that people don't even speak the language anymore. That's a problem. And so Malachi is like the last stop. He's the last one to speak. He's the, the latest prophet. He's the one that ends the entire twelve. The whole thing has been telling us, hold on to God's chosen ruler. Uh, depend on him. He's going to come. And Malachi says, look, he is still going to come. That'll be very clear in the second half of the book. But in the meantime, God is giving you a few prescriptions for this post-Christian world in which you live. Yes, you will wait for the king to come. But in the meantime, here are some things that you'll need to do in preparation for his return. And I think what he preaches here in these few chapters is as relevant for us today than anything else we've seen in the 12 up to this point. And with, so that, being, with that being said, I need to tell you something. The series was supposed to end today, but it is not. I did Zechariah in two parts because I had to. I'm doing Malachi in two parts because I want to. It is that relevant for us as a church family. Some of you like to get to the practical. If you think of the 12 as one book, Malachi is the practical. It's all these indicatives, Yahweh's coming, Yahweh's coming, and then here is your conclusion. And so these are appropriate reflections for us as a church family as we finish up this series on the 12. And today and next week, we'll note that despite the, the despair of a burnout culture, Yahweh offers three prescriptions for those awaiting his return. We're going to see those three prescriptions 
today, and then we're going to note those same ones next week in reverse order. Because that's the way Malachi actually structures the book. Uh, What you'll note is that he's dealing with such a hard-hearted people that he actually argues with them. Like, he can sense their sarcasm, and he starts to interact and dispute with them. So Malachi is organized around these six or seven disputations or arguments. Basically, the way it works is he'll say something, and then he'll anticipate an objection. And they'll say, well, let's look at uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but notice the disputation. But you say, how have you loved us? And then he responds, it's not Esau, uh, Esau Jacob's brother. And he starts to argue his point. So he's going to make a point, they're going to make a counterpoint, and then he's going to counter their counterpoint. And he does this several times. But what's fascinating about the book, for those of you who like this kind of stuff, is the structure follows that same mirror pattern that we see a lot through the other prophets. Basically, the first argument that's recorded for us uh, is about God to us. The second argument that we're going to note is about us to God. And the third argument that we'll see is about us to one another. Now, here's what's going to happen next week. You're going to get to the halfway point of the book at the end of this sermon, hopefully. And you get to next week, and he's going to reverse it. He's going to do us to one another as the prescription. Then he's going to back it up, and he's going to hit us to God. And then he's going to close the book out by talking about God to us. Does that make sense? And all three of these movements, if you will, are ultimately prescriptions for those who are awaiting his return. So let's look at this first prescription for those of us who are waiting for God to do that which he started. It is to give you basic words to be able to hold on to. It is to recognize his love. God prescribes this to you. He longs for those who are waiting to recognize his love. Now we we, we see verses 2 to 5 again. Notice the argument. See if you can get the overview of this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And you notice the sarcasm. God continues, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Uh, this, this first prescription of God is for them to actually recognize that He loves them in a special way. Now, what's so interesting about it is He declares through the prophet, I love you, and the prophet knows that they doubt it. I mean, they're like literally asking like with arms crossed and kind of bitter, Where have you loved us? I mean, they're looking around at their economic situation, for example, and noticing that it's no different than it was 30, 40 years ago. They're looking at the fact that they are actually still under the thumb of Persia, even though they do have the freedom to live in their own city. God promised them that they would be ruling the world, and they weren't weren't ruling the world, they were being ruled by the world. 
And so they're saying, do you really love us? Is it, is it actually like, like that you care? I mean, in light of what we're experiencing in this moment? And Yahweh says, all right, here's how you can know. I want you to think about the way that I have treated Esau and his descendants versus Jacob, whose name is also Israel, and his descendants. Remember, both of those guys were, were children of the promised seed. Uh, they were both the, the, the descendants of, of Abraham. And yet God had a special love for the one that he did not have for the other. Some of you look in this and you're already feeling a little uncomfortable by the fact that it says, uh, Jacob, or excuse me, Esau I have hated. You need to understand, and I can prove this another day at another time, hated language when used in a covenant context is showing that one party is favored and the other is not. It is not God's active hatred and hostility toward a certain group. It is his passing over of that for the preferential treatment of another. God does have favorites. Get over it. And he favored, in this case, Israel. And you know how he's reminding them that he loves them? He says, look around. You're still here. Edom is not. You, as descendants of Israel, you're still here. I have protected you. And even though you have gone through a lot, you you are still alive. The promise is still alive. Esau, by this point, had been decimated by foreign nations. They are no longer in existence. In fact, even archaeologists today struggle to find the remnants of Edom. And this particular people group was a thorn in Israel's side for so long. In fact, you may remember when we did the book of Obadiah, that it was promised that, that the, the Edomites would eventually be destroyed. Guess what? God came through and his promise they were destroyed. And he's saying, look, I'm still holding on to you. I let them go. I obviously still love you. And friends, I think that we need to do a better job at embracing God's love through the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. I was having a conversation with a family member this week, and uh, they were telling me about uh, their upbringing and about how they just thought it was, you know, rather legalistic and cold. And, and so I asked them if, if they thought that the way that they were raised would be characterized more by um, just, you know, a commandment, you know, than, than love. Anyway, she said, yes, yes, that, that, that would be it. She said, uh, definitely more Old Testament than new. And I thought, man, the Old Testament has such bad PR. Like, people just assume that that's the bad one and the New Testament is the good one. Do you not notice the opening argument to Malachi, before he gives you any other commands, any other prescriptions, is, I love you. I want you to know that I love you. Consider the fact that other people have been treated differently than you. I have kept you in existence. You are the apple of my eye. Friends, this is God all the way through. He wants His people to know that He loves them because that's what enables their obedience. Is it not the scheme of Satan himself to plant those seeds of doubt within our own heart? He's been doing it for thousands of years. It first started in the garden. You remember that question that was asked to Eve? Has God really said? 
What was he doing in that moment? He was getting her to doubt whether or not God's command to eat of all the trees of the garden except for this one was actually a good command. Would God, is God really trying to limit you? Is, is God, is he, is he keeping something from you? I mean, this is like satanic strategy 101. Get the individual to doubt the goodness and the love of Almighty God. Friends, this is great news for you today, that as we think about a post-Christian world, the first thing that you need to do is embrace the fact that you have received God's special love in Christ before you need to do anything else. First and foremost, you need to understand and embrace that your God loves you as reflected in the fact that you are here You actually know Christ. You enjoy Him. There are so many who do not benefit from the same blessings and promises that you do. They do not have your Christian hope. They do not have your assurance of pardon or forgiveness. They are roaming through this world lost and in despair. And you have been the object of God's special love as evidenced by the fact that He still reminds you of it through text just like this this morning. Prescription one, for a post-Christian world, we need to recognize his love. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how despairing things seem, your God loves you. There is a, a second prescription. He goes from God to us, from us to God. And if the first prescription can be labeled recognized as love, I think we could label the second one respond to him with worship. Respond to him with worship. Now, we're going to look here quickly, as I can, from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9. That represents a lot of text. Basically, I need to give you an overview of a couple things before we dive into it. Number one, the structure. When you look at 1-6 to the end of the chapter, I guess it's verse uh, 14, you're going to have uh, the cause you know, of the problem. Like He's actually going to say, hey, here's the thing that's the problem that you need to fix. And then in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 9, it's another little paragraph section, he's going to give the curse in light of that. So, He's going to give them the prescription, but he's also going to say, if you don't get this right, here's what's going to happen. Now, that being said, with that kind of macro structure in place, I've got one more thing, hang with me, to to warn you about. He is directly, historically here, addressing the priests in Israel. Now, it's going to be tempting for you to think, uh, what in the world does this have to do with me because I am not... A priest. I've never offered an animal sacrifice that I know of. So if that is you, I want to just go ahead and like pre-contextualize. Like I want to help you understand where we are. Under the new covenant, God sees us all as priests who offer worship to him. Jesus Christ has made that possible. No longer is the priesthood reserved for this special elite group of people. If you are in Christ, you offer worship to him. Don't think this passage is for the preachers. Priests and preachers aren't exact parallels from Old Testament to New Testament. There may be some similarities, but I am not a priest. 
nor are any of our elders. I am only a priest insofar as I have direct access to God, just like you have direct access to God. So that being said, I want you to understand that even though he's addressing the priest in our New Covenant context, we're going to understand that his concern for their worship to him as priest applies just as directly to you as it did to those guys who had their hands often stained in the blood of animals. So this is for you, and the concern is about the way that we respond to God and worship. Okay, you got that? So let's look at the curse, I mean, excuse me, the cause of the problem, and then we'll look at uh, the curse that is actually listed here. This is fascinating. Uh, God begins, as in verse 6, as a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where's my fear? says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. Now notice this, God is saying, naturally, a son should respect his dad, uh, an employer should respect their employee, and he's saying, if I am in any way your father, if I am in any way your Lord, do I not deserve some respect? Pretty easy to follow. And then he says, in light of that, why do you despise me? Why do you look down on me? Uh, why, do you, why do you treat me so, so shamefully? And they object, again, sarcastically, like a rebellious teenager. They say, how have we despised your name? Prove it. In what way have, have we despised you? I mean, we're still, we're still doing the right stuff. And God continues in verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now, Paul, I want you to get what's going on. You're seeing what's happening. You say, all right, you prove it to us. In what way are we actually despising you? He says, just look at what you're giving me. Look at what you're offering to me. And it says that he's offering, that they are offering him polluted things. Now, this is where things get interesting because they are actually, as we read this carefully, they are giving God that which they are already trying to get rid of. It's kind of like the stuff that you give to the Salvation Army. I don't really want it anymore. I don't really need it. I hope somebody else can use it. They can have it. So imagine that mindset. Uh, they're saying, all right, we've got all these animals here, and uh, what's this one that's got the weird rash? Okay, we'll take that one to the temple. And, oh, this one's got a, a limp. Uh, okay, let's take that one to the temple. And this one doesn't produce uh, any milk. So we're going to take this one to the... You know, say, like, they're giving God uh, their leftovers. And, and, it's, and what the, the problem is that the priests are accepting it. So you're seeing the implications of both people and priests. The priest, they're the, like the quality control guys. I mean, to give you a modern parallel, it's like they're like the health inspector. And it says if they like march up to, you know, the restaurant, if you will, and like, you know, the, the sewage is backed up and there's cross-contamination, they're using like the same knife that they use to cut the chicken to chop the salads. And like they, they haven't cleaned anything and there's roaches and rats and everything. And, and the guy's coming up and he's saying, the owner's like, hey, you're cool with the restaurant, right? And the inspector's like, yeah, this will work. This will work. That's what the priests are doing. The people are offering these main things, and they're like, okay, no problem. 
I'll sacrifice that for you. Do you see the implications of this? So it's this, this half-hearted, leftover kind of worship. And look at verse 9. It says, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 10 is great. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Notice that. He's saying, I'd rather the temple be shut down than for you to continue to do what you're doing. This is a condemned restaurant. He wants the temple condemned. He wants their worship condemned. I think that sometimes we're tempted to think that something's better than nothing with God. That you know what, if at least if I give him a little bit, look, at least if I just like offer him this, I mean it's better than offering him nothing at all. And you know where the text will slap you right across the face? It says, I'd rather not receive anything called worship than get half-hearted worship. I don't think that we grasp this. This is heavy. God is an all-or-nothing God. We love in between. We love gray area. We love margin. We love wiggle room. But he has proclaimed from beginning to end, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And so there's no alternative here for for worship. Worship is giving God your best, offering Him everything, making Him your ultimate. And and notice the, the logic in verse 11. He says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Notice this, God is actually disclosing here that he will one day show his glory to the entire world and the entire world like deserves or, or should at least be offering him worship. We learned that from Journey on Wednesday night for those of you who were able to be there. Some of us were providentially hindered. But I read through the material and I talked with the speaker before he ever got there. We had dinner together and he was telling me what he was going to be speaking on. And he said, I'm going to show from Genesis to Revelation that God is concerned about all the nations giving him glory. Missions is not just a New Testament idea. It is through the whole thing. And we see that here clearly in the book of Malachi. God is concerned from worshipers all around the world. But notice where it fits in the argument. He's saying, the whole world's going to give me glory one day, but you're not. You're not doing it. He says, verse 12, but you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that, it, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, and listen to this, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it at your hand, says the Lord? Here's the answer. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. 
Even the attitude, like, oh, we got to go do this offering again. It is just not acceptable. It is not acceptable to him at all. And he says, anybody who regards worship in that way abides under his curse. Now, can I translate this carefully for our New Covenant context? I don't want you to think that if you ever come to church because you're supposed to, not because you wanted to, that all of a sudden you're under the curse of God. Uh, If that be the case, uh, I might have a few bad Sundays. We all know what it's like to make ourselves do something that we know that we need to do. We don't always do what we're supposed to do because we want to. But what he is referring to here is this bent that was really crystallized in this particular culture that just was totally fine with saying, okay, we're Yahweh's people, we got to go do this sacrifice thing, and they were just, to use the modern American phrase, going through the motions. It's frustrating to me, mind-blowing to me, I don't even know how to say it, that we regard the, the personhood of human beings more than we regard the personhood of God. Every husband or aspiring husband in the room knows that he cannot, as Valentine's Day fastly approaches, just perfunctorily go through the motions of saying, well, here's your annual flowers, here's your annual card, let's go on our annual date and just spend our annual time together. Like that, that kind of mindset is just not cool. It doesn't fly because we know that like the person wants affection and and relationship it you know when someone's just doing it to do it and yet we say with God and in our service to him that such habitual cold lifeless obedience is okay my girlfriend may not like it but God's cool with it not true not true he says don't even offer it he says if this is your heart. If this is what characterizes your worship, you are under the curse of Almighty God. Translated, you're on your way to hell. I am so disturbed and brokenhearted over legalistic types of religion that are actually propagated in many places in the American Southeast and in the American Northeast. I think of just two expressions in particular. One is just the good old-fashioned Southerner loves, you know, just showing up to church on Sundays and going through the motions and checking off their Bible reading plan and all this kind of stuff because they know that they did what they needed to do. They, they, They checked off the boxes and everything's cool. God hates that. He says that's not worship. And you know what it is? It's just a holdover from the Roman Catholic practice of showing up to Mass, going through the motions, literally going through the motions, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, hold the rosary, go to confession, go back. Like, and then saying, okay, I did my thing. I'm good. That's not conversion. That's not the blessing of God. God's new covenant actually gives us a heart. A heart that longs to worship Him and to give Him our best. And if we're just like, all right, I'm going to do my my three check-ins for the week so I can do what I really want to do. Friends, that could be a sign that you're not actually in Christ. It's polluted.
it is my, my longing that everyone who is here and, and worships with us at Faith Bible is enamored regularly with the goodness and greatness of God so that they long to give Him their best, not only in this gathering, but outside of it. And friends, that requires the supernatural enablement of God. There's a Puritan prayer written uh, probably 300 years ago, but it was recently turned into a song. We sing it often here. We'll sing it today. I, I want you to listen to the logic behind this this prayer-based song, and how it's rooted in the greatness of God and our total devotion that should spring forth from that. O great God of highest heaven, think about that, he's the highest, in light of that, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war, you have loved and purchased me, make me yours forevermore. Do you get the idea? You're the greatest, you're the best, and therefore I need your help to give all of you back to me. It ends with this. You are worthy to be praised with my every thought and deed. O great God of highest heaven, glorify your name through me. Is that your heart? Is that your longing? This is the response of Malachi. He's saying, hey, post-Christian world, get it. I know there's going to be lots of distractions, but never, ever, ever just go through the motions. Remember that God is your ultimate. Give Him your best. Give Him your everything. Many in Malachi's day failed because the heart that comes with Christ was not yet with them. Uh, friends, this is our condition in Adam, verses 6 through 14. Just, just giving God that which is left over. But when Christ comes in and shows himself to us to be glorious, we want to give him everything and in an increasing capacity. You said, Justin, what do I do, though, if I'm, I'm in a dry spot? What do I do when I hit those seasons and it's like, I'm just not feeling it, you know? I, I do feel like I'm kind of making myself serve the Lord more than I am motivated to actually serve Him. I would say, friends, that one of two things could be true of you in that very moment. If you know that you're in Christ, it could just be uh, temptation elsewhere. If you find your passion for Christ waning, can I be very practical with you for a moment? Analyze your heart because you may be really passionate about something else. I call them passion points. I used to play video games as a kid, especially ones with like uh, NBA players, and they had this thing where you could build your own NBA guy. You know, like you could either make him like really strong or really fast or whatever, but the, the funny thing was they only gave you 100 points to work with. So you could make the guy, you know, like the fastest dude on the court, but if you did that, he was also going to be like really weak or a bad shooter. You know, you only had 100 points. Friends, you only have a certain number of passion points. And if you start finding yourself like geeking out over some particular side thing, naturally your passion for Jesus will wane. That's why we're so concerned here as a church family about idols of the heart. We want to make sure that we're not being subtly drawn away. And there may be some things where you just need to confess it and say, this has enamored me and I want to forsake this and I need to give this thing some space. I need to back off. 
because it's crowding out my passion for Christ. It's a very human thing that we can do. But it may not just be temptation. It may be sovereign trial. I want to encourage you because I'm having a feeling, looking at the faces of those who are gathered here today, that this dryness probably comes more often than any of us would like to admit. And sometimes, sometimes it could be temptation. Sometimes, did you know that it could be sovereign trial? Did you know that God will allow his people in certain seasons to feel distant from him? To lack a passion and a feeling for him? C.S. Lewis depicts this well in the eighth letter that Wormwood or Screwtape will write to Wormwood in the Screwtape letters. You never read it? Interesting fictional story about this senior demon who is coaching his nephew, a beginning demon, on how to tempt Christians. And so as you read the letters, you're kind of getting like the behind the scenes of Satan's strategy so that you can kind of mitigate against it. It's very creative. But one of the most helpful letters in there is letter eight in which uh, uh, Screwtape describes what he calls uh, the law of undulation. A weird term, I know. But basically what he d- says is, hey, we need to tip these humans into thinking that ups and downs in life are something really weird. Uh, Their health goes from up and down. Their finances go up and down. Uh, Their mental or uh, emotional well-being goes up and down. Like, this is true of them in every part of their life. Sometimes things are good. Sometimes things are bad. But the way that we need to really tempt them is for them to think that if anything ever goes up or down, I mean, down in their Christian life, something's off. (laughs) Like, all of a sudden, something is weird there. And so then he describes the fact how how, how God works with, with people and he draws them into himself and there's this initial sweetness to their walk with God and they, they feel like they're in love with God and they, and they have a passion for him. And this is what he says. He is prepared. God is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off with communications of his presence which though faint seem great to, to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But... He never allows this state of affairs to last for long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not, in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. And then here's the great part. Listen carefully. This is because he wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, talking about God, looks around upon a universe from which every train, uh, trace of him seems to have vanished and asked why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Friends, God sovereignly does that. Some of you, I say this very compassionately, you are more emotional. 
I'm about as emotional as this podium. But some of you have, you have really high highs, you have really low lows, and, and it would be tempting as I'm even preaching this this morning for you to think, oh no, am I under the curse of God because I've experienced this season in which I feel distant. That is not what's going on. God is in control of even your emotions. But the question is, do you have a heart that wants to obey? You want to give him your best, even though sometimes you don't necessarily feel like giving him your best. This is what the the Puritans called the affections. We think of affections as emotions. You're not reading the Puritans right if that's what you think. They thought of affections as that which affected someone, that which moved someone. Yes, there could be an emotional element to it, but at the end of the day, there is this longing for obedience that, that, that is true of everyone who is genuinely in Christ. And so, friends, we are reminded that no matter how things may get in the world around us, we need to know that God loves us, and in light of that, we offer Him pure, unadulterated worship with everything He has given us. Our time, our talent, our, our treasure, our relationships, our opportunities. It is, we want Him to be first and foremost And this is what he says, though, to those who are just trying to go through the religious motions. Here's the penalty. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Here's the back half, the bad side. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. This is so graphic, and I won't even go into detail. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Just pause there for a second. He's describing divine wrath for those who offer half-hearted worship, and he presents it in a graphic and disturbing way that without me going into great detail shows not only the pain of hell, but also the dishonor of hell. God thinks that those who rebel against him and refuse to receive The free gift of His Son are disgusting. To the point that He wants them out of His presence, just as the priests would get rid of all that excrement and blood and entrails and remove it from the camp, God says, I will remove you from My presence. You abide under My curse. Friends, think of that. That that is the state of those who offer half-hearted worship to God. He sees it as disgusting and vile, and and he's going to remove them from his presence. It's one thing to jump to the New Testament and try to describe the physical pains and torture of hell. But what about the shame of it? The shame of being rejected from the presence of God. This is how much God hates idolatry. This is how much God hates half-hearted worship. That's why I say, friends, it's inescapably all or nothing. It's binary. It's a zero or one. 
There's nowhere in between. He then will reference in the next few verses that special blessings were promised to priests in the Old Testament. He references here this a thing that happened to Eleazar, a priest in an Old Covenant context who in his zeal showed a, a special commitment to God and His glory and God blessed him in a special way for that. But in verse 8, he says, You haven't done that. You have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stru- stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And so we see the importance then of the second prescription. It isn't just about God to us, it's us to God. He wants our everything. And I would say to you today, if you're wondering, have I really given him everything? Do I really want to give him everything? Am I really actually in Christ? Have I been enabled to obey him in this way? Oh, friend, do not leave here today without talking to another saint around you. It is our desire, all of us in this church, that you would know that you are loved by God and have been enabled through the resurrection power of Christ to express love to him. There's a third prescription. This one's very interesting and practical. And I was immensely tempted to give it its own message. But if I turn Malachi into three sermons, I think I'm going to get in trouble. God to us, us to God, us to one another. The first one, prescription, uh, we labeled recognize his love. The, the second is respond with worship. The third, what we call reflect his love. Reflect his love to one another. And what makes this one interesting is the way that it speaks of, of marriage being this unique context by which love is shown to other people. And, and it holds up marriage in, in this special light. I, in fact, I, I was stunned by the practicality of the description of this particular capacity to show love to other individuals. So much so that I do think it deserves actually more time than what I can even give it today. So I'm going to do something kind of weird. I'm telling you the third point, and I will expand upon it next week. So we've hit, so far today, God to us, us to God, and then the third one is us to one another. Next week, I'm going to cover the us to one another from the one side, and then I'm going to cover the us to one another from the other side, and then the uh, us to God, and then the last God to us. So if there's six major points in Malachi, I did two today. I got it. But friends, I encourage you to read this carefully this week, especially in a church like ours where in our mission statement we say we long to raise up generations of God-glorifying Christ followers. This needs special attention in our church family, so you can prepare for that. But I want you to know right now that our relationships with one another matter to God. And even though it matters generally, it especially matters in the covenant of marriage, which we'll see next week. With that in mind, 
I can, though, I think, still conclude this particular message by reminding you that even though I may be getting old, (laughs) I'm not grumpy, uh, nor do I despair. I guess that is one of those things that kind of can come with age for some people. There's no despair here. Malachi, even though he knows he's writing to what I am calling a post-Christian world, he has good news because, here's the deal, friends, God is still writing prescriptions. All of us know from having cared for loved ones who have passed away, there comes a point in time where the doctor closes the prescription book and says, you know, just go home. Just enjoy the time with your family. Just try to get the rest that you can. There's nothing else that I can do for you. Aren't you glad that in the book of Malachi, God doesn't say there's nothing else I can do for you? He is still speaking. He is still writing prescriptions. There's still still pulse there. There's still life. There's still hope. And so he says in his grace, recognize my love for you. Respond and worship to me and reflect that love to one another. I would think that, like any good doctor, God places these prescriptions in a certain order. Don't get them out of order, friends. Let's just turn them to the form of questions and then we'll pray. First, before anything else, before you ever try to show love to other people, before you ever try to express worship to him, have you recognized his love for you in Christ? That's where hope is found. It is in Christ. God has shown his special love to his people by sending his son to take on our fallen humanity, to pay the curse of sin, to provide righteousness. He died paying the penalty. He rose again, giving life. And that is his love. Have you recognized that? Have you received that? That's the first thing. And then only after that is in place, the second thing, have you responded in worship? Paul, after he gives 11 chapters of gospel, sums up what he wants the people to respond in in chapter 12, verse 1 of Romans, saying, hey, present your bodies, every part of you, a living sacrifice unto God. Give him your everything. Is you're all on the altar, the old hymn says. Indeed, uh, Christ has obeyed on your behalf, but you live this out. There may be opportunity where something is distracting you, something else has taken some of those passion points. I would encourage you, confess it, forsake it, turn to God. Maybe you're in one of those providential seasons of trial. Hold on, friends, trust Him to bring you out of it. <laughs> A great word from Dane Ortland, I heard earlier this week. It says, waiting on God is less like sitting in a hammock holding a margarita and more like sitting on the floor and holding a plank. <laughs> it is tough. It is difficult. But you will wait and God will provide relief. Even in this season of trial, hold on in faith. 
And God will restore the pleasure so that you can give Him your fullest praise. And then the last one, if you say things are good between you and God, they must be good with you and others. It is inescapable. Jesus made it clear that to love God is also to love His people. First John says it is impossible to say that you love God and not love your brother. And friends, if we must love our brother, how much more does that apply for those who are married to your spouse? This is the prescription for a post-Christian world. Let's pray now for God's help and enablement to give him that which he deserves in light of what he's provided. Father, thank you for your word and its practicality. I pray now, Lord, as we leave this, this place, that we would go conscious and aware of your love for us, Lord, enabled indeed by your Spirit who is residing within us, or that we would give you our all, our everything, that we would worship you with our highest affection and passions, and that that would translate into practical expressions of love to those around us, especially to those who may be in our own home, and for those with whom we share the covenant of marriage. Father, work in your church in these t- difficult days, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.